on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And we are so pleased to welcome back to our show in our studio Andrew Morehouse, who is the executive director of the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts. He has held that position for some 18 years. Andrew Morehouse, thank you for being with us today. I want you to tell us what, from your perspective as the executive director of the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts, what you see what your perspective is with regard to the recent flooding and devastation of farms here in western Massachusetts and how that is going to affect us here in the area. I appreciate that very much, Bill. But before I answer that, uh, it's probably worth reminding folks who may not know what the food bank is. I would appreciate that. Yeah, and what we do. Uh, most uh, We're probably best known for providing actual healthy food to folks who need it, uh, households struggling to make ends meet and not able to put food on the table. So I, I think that one of the confusions may be the difference between the food bank exactly. and, the, and the various yep. uh, food pantries. So maybe you could explain that to us. Yeah, getting to that. So we operate uh, a large warehouse in uh, Hatfield now. And so we serve as kind of the supplier or the warehouse, the clearinghouse for all of the local food pantries, meal sites, and shelters across all four counties of Western Massachusetts, Berkshire, Franklin, Hampshire, and Hamden counties. There are 170 of them. Uh, so we store or warehouse that food in our warehouse, and then we get it out to those local food pantries, meal sites, and shelters on any given day, week, or month of the year. 170? 170. 170. Yeah, 170, sites. my friend. Yep. And on top of that, the food bank operates its own uh, direct distribution at se- an additional 77 sites. Every senior center in western Massachusetts and 26 sites where we send our mobile food bank truck trucks uh, once or twice a month. Uh, and people line up uh, 100 150, 200, 250 folks uh, uh, to grab a bag of groceries. Most of the food we distribute is uh, perishable foods, fresh produce, a lot of it coming from our valley, and we'll talk about that um, during the harvest season. Also frozen meats from the supermarkets that they freeze at the sell-by date, and a lot of dairy products. But Andrew Morehouse, before we leave the subject of distribution through the pantries, is that done on a population basis? Is there some sort of a uh, formula by which you decide which of those 170 get which amount? That's right. Yeah, there certainly is. It's really based on the number of individuals that visit pantries and meal sites. So those that are larger, have more capacity, have more resources to get food out, get more food because more people can come to them. It's as simple as that. Makes sense. We go from extra large to to, uh, small, believe it or not. Back to this number of 170 sites, not including the 74 that you just, additional sites you told us about. We're talking about sites like the Amherst Survival Center. I mean, that that's what we mean by it. Yep, you yep. mean by Food pantries is where you can get a bag of groceries like Amherst Survival Center, Northampton Survival Center, down in Springfield, Open Pantry, uh, you know, out in uh, Pittsfield, uh, the South Congregational Church. Every I mean, Hilltown has. Yeah, I mean, e- Hilltown, the Goshen Food Pantry, operated by Northampton Survival Center, East Hampton Community Center. It goes on and on and on and on. These are uh, important nonprofit or faith-based organizations that... Uh, uh, recruit volunteers that we all uh, rely on uh, from the community to who provide work food. So hard to, to make work this so happen. hard to provide food to members in their community, residents of their community. The, the numbers are staggering. I, I hesitate even to ask this next question, but how much food in a year 
does the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts distribute sure. to our region? Yeah, uh, we measure it in terms of pounds, and then we convert it to meals because people can wrap their heads around meals. So in our last fiscal year, which ended last September 30th, we had distributed uh uh, 10 million meals, the equivalent thereof. Uh, and this year we're on track to exceed that. Um, you know, just uh, in April, the, well, excuse me, just in June, we distributed, uh, or our average is uh, just shy of a million meals every month. Okay, this may be a really dumb question, but in terms of distribution, and I do want to get to this question of the devastation Please. by the floods in just a second. Literally, there are trucks from the f- uh, food Bank of Western Massachusetts that go out to these 170 or 244 sites and distribute this on a regular food on a regular basis. Yeah, we have uh, 24. Uh, excuse me, we have five 24-foot refrigerated trucks, two refrigerated vans that are out in the road every day, providing uh, food, delivering it to pantries and meal sites. Many of of our member pantries and meal sites they have their own trucks, so they come and get it. Uh, and uh, so we have a delivery schedule. Works. We'll, we will be expanding it. Uh, in the future, and we'll talk more about that. We will. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about the devastation to farms and to the food production here in Western Massachusetts caused by the recent floods, what the effect is going to be, and how the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts, which you're the executive director of, how the food bank can help ameliorate if yeah. it can, that this situation. Well, there's always we we always rely on support from the community. Uh, that said, uh, every year we purchase about a half a million pounds of vegetables from local farmers through a state program through the Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources called the Mass Grown Program. That's extremely vital to us. Uh, and in addition to that, every year local farms donate about another half million pounds. So that's about a million pounds of fresh vegetables that flow through the food bank warehouse out to pantries and meal sites and ultimately to people in need of food assistance. And I should remind uh, your listening audience that that uh, right now uh, stands at about 94,000 individuals every month, down from the pandemic high of 124,000. Uh, and it's creeping back up again with uh, with inflation and the end of uh, uh, federal pandemic benefits uh, about a year ago. Uh, so we're talking about a lot of people. Uh, and so we rely on, on our fresh produce from our local farmers. And the numbers are just coming in. Uh, we, we receive food from about uh, two dozen uh, farmers locally. And so far, we've heard from about seven or eight of them who have been adversely impacted by uh, the flooding. Some severely, like Mountain View Farm, uh, CSA, uh, others not. Uh, you know, it all depends how close you are to the rivers. Um, uh, but there are several. Uh, what's increasingly worrying, though, is even if the farms haven't been affected by the flooding, the fact that there's so much rain in the ground, uh, it can spawn uh, disease like it did two years ago when we had a, that horrendous rainfall uh, in July of 2021, I guess it was. Uh, and uh, so that can cause a lot of disease and, and, and destroy crops as well. So we don't know yet. Uh, we, need it, we need the weather to dry out and dry out the soil and the plants really fast. But compounding the, the loss, this is not processed food. This is fresh produce, That's local right. produce, what we all lust after. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and, and it needs to move fast. It, it needs to be harvested right on time, and it needs to m- move through uh, the supply chain, at least in the, in the case of the work that we do, through, through the food bank, and then ultimately to, 
uh, to folks in, uh, who will receive it uh, you know, at, a, at a distribution site. I know it's early in terms of projections, but do you have some idea how this will affect the actual amount of food that the food bank will have available to distribute to the what? Yeah, you know I'm saying? 100,000 people a month? who suffer from food insecurity, yep. who def- depend on these food pantries and the food, therefore, from the Food yeah. Bank of Western Mass? Yeah, we're just actually getting out of a, a, a shortage of food from that we historically rely on from the federal government, the USDA. Uh, they had uh, dramatically increased funding, but it wasn't getting through the supply chain. Uh, uh, the government was is really competing with uh, private supermarkets, but it's now starting to flow, uh, and we're relying more on purchasing our own food with uh, unrestricted dollars from donors. So we're purchasing a lot more food. The USDA food is coming in, but we will see a dip in, in local agriculture, uh, either donated or, or that we can buy because of the flooding. We don't know how much yet, uh, but we definitely are going to see a decline in, in uh, uh, produce from local farmers. One aspect of the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts that I'm always impressed with is how you leverage the economy of scale that is available to you. Could you share that information with our listeners, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, folks uh, may often hear this uh, term that we refer to. We call it the kind of uh, our multiplier. If, you know, for every dollar donated, we're able to provide the equivalent of three meals, and that's because we have this large warehouse, which uh, we're going to replace with even a lar- larger one very, very soon. Uh, and so we're able to receive large quantities of donated food. And we have full-time staff who are out there knocking on doors at supermarkets and farms and the like, uh, um, uh, you know, sourcing more and more produce that would otherwise go to waste. And uh, when we're in, in difficult times, like the pandemic, the Great Recession, which I've lived through here at my job, uh, and now um, this flooding, uh, you know, there's more support from the state and federal governments. And so we're able to store that in our warehouse and get it out. That's the magic behind that multiplier. Food that would otherwise go to waste. Explain that to us. Yeah, that's the donated food that you've seen, uh, well, that uh, would otherwise be in the supermarket, and it could be that fresh produce uh, that's approaching its... uh, uh, you, you know, life in a supermarket, which has to be really high quality. Uh, and instead of throwing it out, it's donated to the food bank and local food pantries and meal sites. So it's going to happen quickly because it's the last That's day right. or two for that food. You get it exactly. to you, you get it to the people. Yep. It, it all works. That's why we we, <clears throat> we instituted this uh, mobile food bank program so that when uh, the food comes to the food bank, it's on a truck the next day, and it's going out. Uh, uh, that's that's why we had to invest in, in trucks of our own to get, get healthy food out quickly. Uh, and of course, those, those frozen meats that come from the supermarket, that's a perfect example of donated food. It, it would otherwise go to waste. It would go into a, you know, a dumpster. Now it can't uh, go into municipal landfills. So the, uh, Stop and Shop and Big Y, they freeze it at the sell-by date. They donate it upwards to a million pounds every year. Say that again. Yeah, a million pounds of meat every year that's donated to the food bank thanks to our local supermarkets, principally Big Y and also Stop and Shop. And in terms of the direct donations to the food bank of Western Massachusetts, go back and tell us. I, I know num- numbers make people's eyes glaze yeah. over, but yeah, it's, that's pheno- look, it's like, phenomenal. Yeah, I like to think about this in terms of uh, percentages. So if you, if you think of the fact that we distribute you know, upwards to the equivalent of 10 million meals a year, half of that is donated from local supermarkets, 
farms uh, and manufacturers, of which there are a few in, in Western Mass. Does the food bank buy directly from local farms? Yes, we do. Yes, again, uh, through the Mass Grown program of MDAR, we purchase about a half a million pounds of food, of veg- fresh vegetables from about a dozen local farmers every year. And have you been in contact with them or they with you since the torrential rains have struck our area? Uh, with MDAR or farmer? Well, actually, with, the, with, with both. Absolutely, yeah. We have a very close relationship with MDAR. Uh, they, MDAR is the Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources, and it administers uh, the MEFAP program, which is the Massachusetts Emergency Food Assistance Program. It's the single— And we should, we should tell listeners we're not going to have a quiz on the acronyms yeah, when yeah, we're done Yeah, yeah, right. But it's the largest source of food that we receive at the food bank. Single source is from, from the state of Massachusetts. And, and we know the, the commissioner just spent a lot of time out here looking at exactly the devastation that we're talking about. That's right. She sure did. Yeah, she's committed to, to, to her, her job and, and her passion. She was a farm, from a farming family uh, and still is. Uh, so on the side, I guess. Uh, so uh, yeah, um, uh, you know the the MEFAP state funding program for emergency food is the largest source of uh, funding for us, and from that we is the mass grown program that we uh, use to buy local produce from local farmers here in the Pioneer Valley, the the breadbasket of of the Commonwealth. Which is kind of the good news, but the bad news is there's a limited amount, I suspect, that the state can do. Uh, to ameliorate what the weather is bringing us. I mean, the the soil is wet. The yeah. disease can happen. The uh, crops that are going to survive are going to survive, and those that aren't, there's, yep. it's not like there's some magic pump out there in the that's right. in the universe that can pump the water away. And, yeah, and farmers will tell you that's always been the case. The problem is with climate change, it's happening more frequently. This is the third year in a row that uh, uh, the local agriculture has been hit really hard by you know first drought in 2021, uh, then uh, rain last year, and here we are again with uh, with rain. Or it was the other way around. 2021 was the rainy uh, summer. Last year was a drought, and, and we're back to rain again. Yeah, 2021 is, is the July whose records we just broke. Yep. Right? And uh, the year between was a was drought. The, was the drought last year, yeah. And, and, and we were talking to a soil scientist on the show the other day that uh, I keep hearing. I keep hearing it from farmers in my neck of the woods that uh, a drought just kills that year's harvest, but these rains take away the soil for future, it's right. a devastating yeah. event. Yeah, it is, and and we we love our farms out here for sure. They're we part sure of the do. community. They provide us with healthy food, and they employ uh, lots of people. Uh, and, and it's important. And I should say, many of those folks that they employ are food insecure. Uh, an ironic uh, uh, um, fact uh, that you know people who grow our food uh, have a hard time buying the food they that they grow. We are speaking with Andrew Morehouse, who is the executive director of the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back more with Andrew Morehouse right after this. Didn't know flying got so high. Beans for breakfast once again. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. 
It's Polka Carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts and messages from community nonprofits. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Andrew Morehouse, who is the Executive Director of the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts. We've been talking about the devastation that the rains have caused here in our region to farmers and to food production. And during the break, we continue that conversation. Buzz, you had a question for Andrew. I sure Why don't you do. let our listeners know what it was, and we'll hear his response. So, Andrew, the, um, the supplemental, uh, the, what we call SNAP, it used to be called Food Stamps, uh, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. People who are eligible for that, you have to have, be financially eligible, eligible to receive those that governmental assistance. How does SNAP um, relate to the people who are beneficiaries of what you do, the food bank's food? Yeah, no, I appreciate that question. Well, as, as its name states, it, it's a supplemental source of nutritious food, nutritious, nutrition assistance. It comes uh, electronically on an electronic benefit transfer card for recipients who can then use that card at a supermarket uh, and, and, and now in, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, at a farm stand or a farmer's market or even to purchase a CSA share, a community-supported agriculture share of food over the course of uh, the harvest season. Uh, and that becomes an incredibly powerful uh, source of food assistance. In fact, uh, all of the food banks across the country, of which there are 200, uh, uh, the food assistance that we provide is dwarfed by the Federal Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. For, all, for every pound of food that all 200 food banks provide, the SNAP, Federal SNAP program provides uh, nine pounds of food. Wow. Uh, so it's uh, uh, it's just 
extremely important. It's one of the three pillars of the federal, of our nation's anti-hunger program. Government doing what government should do. Exactly. My understanding is your food bank actually helps people apply. We do. Apply. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, we have four full-time staff who assist individuals seeking to enroll in, in SNAP benefits. And so we work very closely with them in, uh, uh, in English and in Spanish to help them fill out the application, which is pretty complicated. And there are a lot of uh, uh, income verification documents that need to be provided. And so we assist uh, individuals to uh, submit those applications to the Massachusetts Department of Transitional Assistance, which, which administers the program. And we ha therefore, you know, we have a really high uh, approval rate because we know how uh, the program is run. And so we're able to enroll folks in it, about 1,000 a year. Uh, and, and that provides that incredibly important monthly benefit that supplements uh, the, their, uh, their you know, discrete income that they may receive from other sources. Uh, and when that SNAP benefit runs out, um, uh, they've spent all that money, then uh, folks can come to a food pantry or meal site to make it uh, through the end of the month. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people uh, who are ineligible for the SNAP program uh, because their income is just above, or maybe not just above, uh, maybe higher above the income threshold, and they still can't make ends meet with the cost of living and, and, and high inflation. There's another topic I absolutely want to ask you about before we go this morning, but sure. I need to ask you one more question about this. Is this devastation caused by the rains going to create a situation where those who receive SNAP benefits uh, and therefore ha use them up and use them up as they come in day to day, month to month. Will this devastation create a situation where we have, you have, uh, more SNAP benefit dollars or the equivalent of dollars facing fewer goods, which is going to cause prices to rise, which will make less food available? Is that a worry? Honestly, I don't think so. Uh, I believe that there are other sources of food nationally that you, you know that supermarkets will be able to source uh, to make up for the loss of local produce. I don't, and again, I don't know what you know if the same thing's happening in other parts of the country that's compromising our uh, food industry and uh, particularly fresh vegetables. Uh, what it what it will do, of course, is limit the amount of fresh local produce is available. Uh, you know, I did mention that, that people can use their SNAP benefits to buy uh, fresh vegetables locally. Unfortunately, only a small percentage of SNAP recipients actually do that. Uh, so it's a, it's, it's a job for us to get the word out to encourage people to, to avail themselves of that, of that opportunity. Andrew Morehouse, you mentioned the warehouse in Hatfield. You mentioned a new warehouse. I did. This is a story that got enormous amount of press a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> and it's going to get an enormous amount of press again soon. That's right. Tell us what is happening. Yes. Uh, uh, the reason why it's going to get a lot of press is uh, the we've been um, working with uh, contractors and subcontractors who have been building our new warehouse in Chicopee, uh, and it's nearing completion. We'll be moving in the last week of August, uh, and so we will be – uh, moving from Hatfield permanently to Chicopee uh, to a, a new warehouse that a new much larger warehouse. much larger twice the size of our current facility uh, with a lot more bays for for us to be able to exp uh, loading dock bays that is to to expand our 
uh, the amount of food that we receive in any given time from tractor trailers, which we, uh, uh, we're currently limited to only two bays. Uh, we're going to have nine bays, uh, and we're going to be able to increase our, our fleet of trucks as well to get more food out to more people more equitably across all four counties. Andrew Morehouse, you're a good news, bad news story. Yeah. I guess the good news what is good news, is that you'll have more, you, the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts, will have more capability of distributing more food and fresh food to more people and more sites, some 250 almost sites, here in Western Massachusetts. That's the good news. The bad news is you're doubling the amount of space that you have and will need and will use to provide food, which says to me, we have a food insecurity crisis. Your thoughts on that? Absolutely, and we have for a long time, and it's something that we as a society need to wrestle with. You know, when we say that uh, the need for food assistance has uh, declined to pre-pandemic levels, you know, that still means 94,000 people every month are seeking out food assistance. Here in the four counties. In the four counties alone, uh, every month, 94,000 people. That's unconscionable, uh, and we as a society need to, to figure out how to... Uh, reduce that number, if not end hunger, uh, you know, and if not our lifetime, the next. And, you know, that means, and we pay a lot of attention to, to going upstream and looking at the underlying causes of hunger. So we, we devote a lot of attention to public education, like I am doing right now, and advocacy at the state and federal level to try to advocate for a passage of laws and programs and funding that will get at the upstream underlying causes of hunger. Uh, and that's a whole nother topic of conversation. I'd be happy to come back and talk about any time. Well, we would like you to do that. I would like to go back to, for one moment, if I might, to the 94,000 persons per month yeah. who come and come to these food pantries that you've described. Yep. Uh, receiving food essentially uh, produced uh, or delivered to them by the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts is the 94,000 figure, is that the number of people who come or the number of people who are dependent? In other words, if someone comes for a family of five, is the 94,000 yes. include the five? Uh, no, it does not. It's, it's, it does not? It does not. It's the individual. It's the individual who's representing a household. So those are, in, those are unduplicated individuals. Uh, that's right. Uh, that's, uh, so there are far more people who, who rely on that uh, food assistance in the household. For sure. So if the average, and maybe that's the wrong term, but if a person is picking up food for their family and the one person actually is picking up food for an average of two or three, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people per month, depending on the food bank, that's for correct. their food? Yeah, yeah. I, ju- I just want to circle actually, back. Actually, um, maybe I'm incorrect with that. I'll be, I'll be honest and humble. That may represent the number of individuals um, in the household. Um, I'll need to double-check. Okay, that. we'll check yeah. it, and we'll ask you when you're back on yeah, with yeah, us. Sure. And speaking of double-checking, I think that in the census there's 825,000 people in the four counties. Does that sound about right? Yep, yep. 94,000 is a big number out of 825,000. It's more than 10%. That's right, absolutely. And I should say, yeah, I know for a fact that's that's total individuals in the household. Uh, um, so thank you for the correction. And uh, what's important to remember is that about 26% of those individuals are kids, uh, and another 20, 25% are elders. So, you know, more than half of the individuals that we're providing food to are the most vulnerable in our community. Last question for you, if I might, Andrew Morehouse. Please. Uh, I'm wondering whether any of the stigma 
of being a person who is food insecure or whose family is in need of going to these various food pantries, does that stigma still apply? Are there people who don't seek out the food that they need or their family needs because of the stigma, or has that lessened? It's very, very real, <laughs> and, and we hear it all the time. Uh, and, and therefore, yes, the, the actual numbers of individuals that are food insecure probably far exceeds the number that I just described to you of individuals who actually do seek out food assistance. And we know it's very real when you hear in the halls of Congress uh, uh, and, the, and the fact that uh, uh, um, it, it recently Congress passed um, uh, funding that places further restrictions on the recipients of, of SNAP benef uh, benefits. Uh, and uh, I was asked the question, you know, well, well, why, you know, what about these SNAP work requirements that were just passed? Uh, and uh, my re response to that, to this individual was, uh, SNAP work requirements have existed since uh, the early 1990s and they were passed by a Democrat, uh, Democratic President, uh, President Clinton. Uh, so those work requirements have existed for some time. They've just gotten more, uh, and, and I would say unnecessarily onerous uh, uh, to the extent that it's, it's an obstacle to work uh, rather than a, a means to uh, uh, find work. Well, let's conclude with this. You told us about the opening of the new warehouse in Chicopee, twice the size of the present facility that the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts operates in Hatfield. Is there going to be an opening, a celebration, which is weird because I think the real celebration would be, we don't need this facility anymore. Right. And yet you're doubling the size. Your yep. final thoughts about that? Absolutely. We would never call it a celebration. Uh, it will... Uh, and uh, we're, we're planning it now, and what, what it will be is a, uh, an, a grand opening to uh, instill and remind folks that uh, the work that we do is a partnership with everyone in the community uh, to prevent hunger today and work to end hunger tomorrow. Yeah, I look forward to the celebration hosted by the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts with you presiding over it saying, we're closing all our facilities because we have addressed and remedied the problem of food insecurity and hunger yeah. in the United States. I would like to see that. Uh, it won't be in my lifetime. I'll be quite honest with you. I'm not going to be Pollyannish here, uh, especially given you know the cycle of our uh, economy from booms and busts. Uh, it hasn't changed, and climate change now. I think there'll always be a need for food banks and warehouses, but I do hope that over time uh, that we can convert part of our warehouse into a facility that serves other purposes and not only food insecurity. Which, in uh, fact, this facility is built in order to accommodate that exactly, change. Exactly, to support local farms and local producers to store and distribute their food. And I that is something to, to celebrate. I would love to see that day. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Andrew Morehouse. He is the long-time executive director of the Food Bank of Western Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much for being with us today. We look forward to having you back on the show soon. Truly Thank a local hero. Oh, I don't know about that, but um, you guys are the local heroes. Come on, Bill and Buzz. <laughs> Be square. <laughs> Let's go before this gets too mushy. <laughs>
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle is defending her veto of an ordinance passed by City Council that was meant to protect people seeking abortions or other forms of reproductive health care. I don't feel that writing a local ordinance that basically is the, the same as a state ordinance is a good use of municipal time or municipal employees. La Chapelle says the ordinance was performative and an administrative burden on an issue that she does not see as local. Governor Maura Healy visited Deerfield yesterday to speak with farmers about the damages incurred through recent flooding and to assure them she is working to find funds to support cleanup efforts and payroll for the farms. The Healy-Driscoll administration also announced online resources to help individuals and communities impacted by heavy rainfall and flooding, ranging from education, financial assistance, cleanup, and assessments. On Monday, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court upheld the conviction of Greenfield's Dennis Bateman on two counts of first-degree murder and one count of armed robbery. In 2005, a 21-year-old pregnant employee at the Sunoco gas station on Routes 5 and 10 in Deerfield was strangled to death. Bateman's DNA was found at the scene and under the woman's fingernails. He was found guilty two years later. The appeal made by Bateman's lawyer claimed the trial held many errors. However, the Supreme Judicial Court denied the appeal for a new trial or reduction of verdicts. Partial sunshine this morning, showers and thunderstorms this afternoon, which could cause some flash flooding once again, the high of 84 to 88. Evening showers and storms, again with the potential for some flooding, uh, overnight low of 62 to 68. For tomorrow, it's a mixture of sun and clouds, a high of 84 to 88, and dry on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El Departamento de Justicia instó a un juez el jueves a rechazar los intentos de Donald Trump de posponer su juicio por documentos clasificados, diciendo que no había fundamento para una demora abierta solicitada por sus abogados. Los fiscales federales propusieron el mes pasado un juicio el 11 de diciembre para Trump, quien está acusado de 37 delitos graves relacionados con el mal manejo de documentos clasificados en su propiedad de Mar-a-Lago, aunque la fecha real dependerá del juez. Los abogados de Trump respondieron esta semana con una solicitud de postergación. No propusieron una fecha específica, pero dijeron que el caso se refería a cuestiones legales novedosas y que proceder con un juicio dentro de los seis meses es irrazonable y resultaría en un error judicial. El jueves, los fiscales del equipo fiscal especial de Jack Smith respondieron pidiéndole a la jueza federal de distrito, Eileen Cannon, que no pospusiera el juicio más allá de la fecha de diciembre que recomendaron. En otras informaciones, la Agencia contra el Cáncer de la Organización Mundial de la Salud ha considerado que el endulzante aspartame, que se encuentra en las bebidas gaseosas dietéticas e innumerables otros alimentos, es una posible causa de cáncer, mientras que un grupo de expertos separado que analizó la misma evidencia dijo que todavía considera que el sustituto del azúcar es seguro en cantidades limitadas. Los diferentes resultados de las revisiones coordinadas se publicaron el viernes temprano. El aspartame se une a una categoría con más de otros 300 posibles agentes causantes de cáncer. Sin embargo, la guía sobre el uso del endulzante no está cambiando. El aspartame es un endulzante artificial bajo en calorías que es unas 200 veces más dulce que el azúcar. Es un polvo blanco e inodoro y el edulcolorante artificial más utilizado en el mundo. 
Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Hollywood Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Scotch and soda Tomorrow evening at the Academy of Music, there is a very special presentation, the Kingston Trio, and we have with us today one of the members of the Kingston Trio, Mike Marvin. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your getting up to do this after your show last night. You'll be at the Academy of Music in Northampton tomorrow, Wednesday. Mike Marvin, tell us about the current iteration of the Kingston Trio and what you will be performing, the songs that you will be performing tomorrow evening at the Academy of Music. And we should note, tickets are still available. So, Mike, talk to us. Yeah, well, uh, this we've been on the road now for almost uh, the last, uh, well, I would say, six months on this tour and rounding it out. This is just about our last of the 2023 tour dates. And um, we've been um, knocking them out every, everywhere we go. It's, it's surprising how many people are still coming to the shows. We've been selling out standing room only. It's been really incredible and really fulfilling. And, and it's been, it's been pretty great. All of us in the trio now have, intrinsic links to the originals my uh, adopted father my stepfather was nick reynolds who was one of the founders of the group and and uh, nick's you know, one of the few guys that nick ever recorded with outside the trio during the heyday was uh, another member of the band uh tim gorlington and uh buddy woodward is also the, our third member is um has intrinsic links with uh, George Grove, who was in the group for some 41 years. So we're all pretty tight. It's, it's almost a family, and it's it's pretty tight, and, and, and it's fun, and it's great. Tell us some of the songs you'll be performing tomorrow evening at the Academy of Music, please. Yep. Uh, we'll be doing all the hits and all the fan favorites. Um, you can expect anything from Tom Dooley, Scotch and Soda, to Where Have All the Flowers Gone, to Hobo's Lullaby, MTA, I'm Going Home. They're all there, and maybe one or two others, but mostly all pretty recognizable tunes to all for the fan base. This is all about the fans, and, and um, this isn't one of those concerts where you come and you, we play one or two of the hits and then 25 you've never heard so it's the opposite so mike marvin i would appreciate this as our concluding uh question and i note for our listeners the kingston trio at the academy of music in northampton tomorrow night tickets are available at the academy of music box office and online at the academy of music you all are family uh you were family with the original kingston trio members uh what does this performance mean to you personally being on tour like this That's a great question. Um, it's in a way, it's a dream fulfilled. I was in the movie business for many, many years. I never spoke of my affiliation with the Kingston Trio. Um, I, I uh, always hoped that Bob Shane or Nick Reynolds would invite me in to take one of their places, and I can't even begin to tell you the surprise I had when it did happen. And Shane 
called me up once about 10 years ago and said, I'm thinking of retiring. How do you feel about stepping into my place? And it was almost like a dream come true. So yeah, it was really something. And, and to these concerts that we're doing really mean a lot to me. Um, been in the group now on something like a little over 300 concerts uh, in Shane's place. So it's for the last you know decade, it's been... It's been fun and fulfilling, and uh, uh, the trio show is as good as it's ever been. It's really been great. So it's been an emotional, great experience. We've been speaking with Mike Marvin. He is a member of the Kingston Trio. The Kingston Trio will be at the Academy of Music tomorrow evening. Tickets are still available. We so look forward to your concert, and we appreciate your coming to the Valley at the near the end of your tour. Mike Marvin, thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back with the comedy quiz after this. Hang down your head, Tom, Julie. Hang down your head and cry. Hang down your head, Tom, Julie. Poor boy, you're bound to die. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. San Francisco's North Beach in the late 1950s. A new sound, a new scene, and the rich tradition of American folk music bolts into the national spotlight. Leading the charge, the Kingston Trio. Hang down your head, Tom, do Hang down your head and cry. The Kingston Trio, a night at Northampton's Academy of Music, Wednesday, July 19th. Well, let me tell you of the story of a man Charlie on a tragic and fateful day. Today's Kingston Trio, playing the timeless songs. Get tickets now at the Academy of Music website or box office. More than 50 years after Tom Dooley shot to the top of the charts and the Kingston Trio's spirited folk music captured the hearts of the nation, the trio lives on, bringing all the energy to these enduring songs. The Kingston Trio, Wednesday, July 19th, 7 p.m., Academy of Music, downtown Northampton. Where have all the flowers gone? What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside. Get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads. For the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. And this is our comedy quiz. I turn the microphone over to Maddie Benjamin. 
Thank you so much, Bill, and good morning, and welcome to the Happier Valley Comedy Comedy Quiz Show. My name is Maddie Benjamin. I'm the program manager and facilitator of fun at Happier Valley Comedy and the monthly nerd in residence here on the Happier Valley Comedy Comedy Quiz Show. I'm here to ask a handful of funny people to answer questions on a subject they know nothing about, and we are lucky to have the panelists that we have this morning. So joining us today are Scott Braidman, the artistic director at Happier Valley Comedy. Hi, Scott. Oh, hello, it's me. <laughs> Hi, and welcome. Uh, we also have Mo- Moma Galligan, a local actor, as well as a performer at the HVC Theater. Hi, Mo. Hey, it's great to be here. And finally, we have Laura Patrick, who is not only a performer at Happy Valley Comedy, but a former comedy quiz show host herself. The founder. Yes. <laughs> I'm so glad to be back. (laughs) (laughs) And we are so happy to have you. Uh, And this month on the Comedy Quiz, we are following up uh, the Food Bank's uh, healthy conversation about bringing food to uh, those in need with a uh, comedy quiz about junk food. Okay, we're all we're all ears and appetites. Go. <laughs> all right, excellent. Uh, are you folks all ready? We're ready. Yeah. Ready. Okay. So the first question, we're going to start warm up with a couple of uh, multiple choice questions. Uh, now, uh, so we'll get we'll get started with this one. Uh, first question is: Well, definitely not a health food. Which of the following snacks is not accidentally vegan? So I'm going to read you four snacks, uh, three of which just happen to be vegan, uh, and one of which is not vegan. Okay? So you're going to tell me which one is not. Uh, A is Oreos. B is Hershey's syrup. C is Ritz crackers. And D is Twinkies. Three of those <laughs> foods are vegan. <laughs> I feel so much better already. That's terrific. I eat health food. Who knew? I didn't. Okay, let's hear the guesses. Oh, uh, this is Laura. I am definitely going to say Oreo is vegan because that's the only one on the list that I eat. Hmm. Is the is the question which, which question one is, is not? not Three of those what are I actually vegan. In that case, mm-hmm. what I meant was... <laughs> a quick recovery by Laura uh, Twinkies are not vegan. Oh, please, God, please let Twinkies And now we vegan. know why you're an ex-host. <laughs> yeah. I, this is Scott. I'm going to go with Ritz crackers. Ooh. This is Mo, and I am also going with Ritz crackers. Well, uh, they might be buttery in texture. They are not buttery in fact. Uh, Ritz crackers are vegan, which means that the correct answer is D, Twinkies. Uh, Twinkies, in fact, are not even vegetarian because they are made with beef lard. (laughs) Sorry, did you say beef lard? Yes, I did. In a Twinkie? In a Twinkie. Why, Maddie? I can't answer that question. That's beyond me. (laughs) So Laura gets a point for that first question. She does. And I have beef lard seared into my brain now. You're welcome. Uh, That question wasn't gross enough. Uh, We're going to get even grosser for question number two. Uh, This is another uh, elimination, so you're going to give me the one that does not uh, meet the requirements, okay? Um, So, which of the following is not a jelly belly jelly bean flavor, okay? Uh, Which is not? Is it A, baby wipes, B, Gasoline. Did you say say baby wipes or baby whites? Baby wipes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, B, gasoline. C, skunk spray. 
Or D, old Band-Aid. Wow. <laughs> what? What? Maddie, why? Uh, again, uh, I'm not uh, able to give answers yeah, to these. you're saying Jelly Belly. These are not Birdie Bots every flavor. No, no, no. This is from Jelly Belly's uh, line of uh, uh, gross flavors where they give you a box and there are two that are the same color and one of them is a normal flavor and one of them is a gross flavor. Scott, quit, quit delaying. Just, <laughs> okay. just, just guess. This is Laura. I'm going to guess that the one that Jelly Belly is not flavoring is gasoline. Please let that be true. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I Because I think sometimes you like the smell of gasoline. Kids do. I did. I'm weird. Okay. I'll <laughs> go so, with... Uh, I'm so glad you said that because it was exactly what was on I'm my gonna, mind. I'm going to go with baby wipes, but also, Maddie, why? <laughs> Actually, we're all weird, and um, I'm going to go with the stinky band-aids. Old, band-aids. old, <laughs> old stinky band-aids. Yeah. Yes. Ah. And I know the answer because that Jelly Belly question was on the bar examination. <laughs> well, uh, good thing we don't have a ringer uh, chiming in. Uh, the correct answer, which is not a Jelly Belly flavor, is B, gasoline. Oh, wow. But if you wow. want to chew on an old band-aid... <laughs> You can have that experience. Thanks, Jelly Belly. Dream come true. I feel like I have chewed on an old Band-Aid, and that's why I thought they they called that a real flavor. (laughs) All right. Are we feeling warmed up with our uh, multiple choice and ready to jump into some open answer questions? Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm actually completely done with human civilization. (laughs) Well, it's too late because I'm going to ask you about some other weirdos. Uh, So the... This The first open uh, choice question is, um, it was the final wish of Frederick J. Bauer, the inventor of this iconic snack food container, to be buried inside his invention. What is the container? This is a light and airy question brought to you by Maddie Benjamin. Maddie Benjamin, you need to get a life. Let's go, guys. What's the answer? It's too late for that. Well, I mm-hmm. feel like it's. I, I thought the person who made Tupperware had a last name like Tupper, and that's where the name came from. I'm going to say cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, this is Laura. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with a Fig Newton box. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Awfully small. Yeah. Human. <laughs> oh, um, the remains are cremated. Okay. Just oh, to like help it. clarify. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All if right. that impacts your answer. What year was this? <laughs> Do we get a hint? Uh, it's solidly within the 20th century. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with a baggie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Ziploc. Uh, yeah. um, if, Ziploc I, if I said cylindrical snack food tube, would any of you want to change your answers? Pringles. Uh, amazing. Scott, you are correct. Frederick G. Bauer invented the Pringles can, and it was his final wish to be interred in his invention. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Never eating Pringles again. Nice and light. (laughs) (laughs) Bet you can't eat just one. (laughs) Once you pop. Uh, I guess guess so. Um, All right. Uh, For our next open response question uh, is about Kit Kat bars. Kit Kat bars are uh, chocolate-coated wafers with a filling in between the wafers. What is the primary ingredient in that filling? Ooh, this is Laura. I'm going to go hazelnut something. Something hazelnut. This is Mo. Uh, Some kind of nugget. 
Uh, skim milk powder. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I were to say that uh, in order to make this filling, it, you need to sort of uh, cannibalize something, uh, oh. what would you say it is? You know, the cannibals Can- after the can- last can- Candy bar cannibals. <laughs> oh. Listen, this is a very light comedy quiz. This yeah. is what I promised to bring. <laughs> can- candy cannibalism? Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, I don't know. Uh, Reese's peanut butter dust? <laughs> <laughs> Butter, butterfinger, butterfinger, butter. Maddie, give me a break. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I shouldn't have laughed at that one. Yep. Toenails. I don't know. Very, very good guess, Mo. Um, But it is, in fact, uh, other Kit Kat bars. Kit Kats Uh, are filled with other Kit Kat bars, which makes me wonder where did you get the first? Kit Kat bar. <laughs> the sound you're about to hear is people beating up Maddie Benjamin. <laughs> it's not a it's not a grim comedy quiz. It's a philosophical comedy. Co- Who was the first Kit Kat bar? And she's lit- literally ruined all of our favorite foods. For us. So all right, um, we are gonna do. Uh, we, so we gotta uh, unfortunately wrap up the comedy quiz uh, today. Uh, but it seems like what are, what's our final score looking like, Bill? Uh, we're going to give Scott Braben 20 points for okay. creativity. Uh, we're going to give Laura Patrick 40 points for creativity. Mo, we're going to give you 80 points because you're just such a good sport. And Maddie Benjamin, you <laughs> won because these were great questions. <laughs> well, if you had a lot of fun thinking about chewing on old Band-Aids uh, today and you would like to have some more fun, uh, you can join us at One Mill Valley Road in Hadley at the Happy Valley Comedy Theater. Uh, we have shows uh, every Saturday night, and you can actually catch a show both Friday and Saturday night this week. So we hope we see you there. Past Peanut butter dust, please. <laughs> Maddie Scott, Laura Moe, Dan Torres, Buzz Eisenberg, thank you all so very much. And we'll see you at the Comedy, 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 Comedy Club. Thank you. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating? but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, whmp.com, a Northampton Radio Group station.
It's 10 o'clock. This morning in Phoenix, they're facing their 19th consecutive day of temperatures of 110 degrees or higher. A construction project knocked out power to this woman's home. It just started heating up pretty quick. It didn't take long. It was real uncomfortable. Correspondent Jonathan Vigliotti begins team coverage from L.A. California's Death Valley continues to be stifled by triple-digit heat. Temperatures are above 110 degrees at night. Jeff Smith is with Pacific Gas and Electric. That can be really taxing on the electrical equipment. I'm Vicki Barker at the Foreign Desk in London. Heat records are being broken across southern Europe this week. A helicopter drops water bombs on wildfires that have forced the evacuation of several mountains villages in Switzerland. Madrid suffering through its third heat wave of the summer. It's too hot, this man says. Former President Trump has just announced on his social media platform he's received a letter from the Justice Department informing him he's a target of an investigation into efforts to undo the 2020 election. Lawyers for both sides in Mr. Trump's classified documents case will be in federal court in Miami today for a pretrial conference. We've just learned more about a U.S. citizen detained in North Korea. Pentagon correspondent Cammie McCormick. CBS News confirms an American in North Korean custody is an American soldier that crossed the border during a tour without authorization. A U.S. official says he was being escorted back to the U.S. for disciplinary reasons, went through airport security, and then somehow managed to get on the tour. Federal safety regulators have opened yet another investigation into a deadly accident involving a Tesla that may have been on driver assist. WWJ's Jeff Gilbert has the details. Officials of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration believe one of Tesla's automation systems was engaged in this latest fatal crash in California involving a 2018 Model 3. A few years back, he spoke out against hazing in college sports. We've really thought deep about how we want to welcome our new family members into our programs and into our organizations. Hazing should have nothing to do with it. Today, a former Northwestern football player filed the first lawsuit against former coach Pat Fitzgerald, fired last week over allegations of hazing by 11 current or former players. The suit also names the school's leadership and seeks monetary damages. The player joined the team in 2018 and left last year. The Dow is up 151 points. This is CBS News. Find great hires fast with Indeed. Their end-to-end hiring solution makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair, Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. There's a new world poker champion. Days of drama over in Las Vegas. And for Weidman, a 
Master Chip League. 35-year-old Daniel. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle is defending her veto of an ordinance passed by city council that was meant to protect people seeking abortions or other forms of reproductive health care. I don't feel that writing a local ordinance that basically is the, the same as a state ordinance is a good use of municipal time or municipal employees. La Chapelle says the ordinance was performative and an administrative burden on an issue that she does not see as local. Governor Maura Healy visited Deerfield yesterday to speak with farmers about the damages incurred through recent flooding and to assure them she is working to find funds to support cleanup efforts and payroll for the farms. The Healy-Driscoll administration also announced online resources to help individuals and communities impacted by heavy rainfall and flooding, ranging from education, financial assistance, cleanup, and assessments. On Monday, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court upheld the conviction of Greenfield's Dennis Bateman on two counts of first-degree murder and one count of armed robbery. In 2005, a 21-year-old pregnant employee at the Sunoco gas station on Routes 5 and 10 in Deerfield was strangled to death. Bateman's DNA was found at the scene and under the woman's fingernails. He was found guilty two years later. The appeal made by Bateman's lawyer claimed the trial held many errors. However, the Supreme Judicial Court denied the appeal for a new trial or reduction of verdicts. Partial sunshine this morning, showers and thunderstorms this afternoon, which could cause some flash flooding once again, the high of 84 to 88. Evening showers and storms, again with the potential for some flooding, uh, overnight low of 62 to 68. For tomorrow, it's a mixture of sun and clouds, a high of 84 to 88, and dry on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And this is that time of the month, which is just uh, such an important segment that uh, we get to enjoy. We learn so much from Professor Carrie Baker of Smith College, the chair of Afri American, American Studies and professor in the program of Study of Women and Gender at Smith and a contributing editor for Ms. Magazine, writing regularly on women's legal rights and feminist activism. Feminist feature always informs us. Hello, Carrie. Hi, Buzz. Great to be here today. So this show is about sort of mining the totally cool feminists that are in the valley. There are so many people working locally at the state level and nationally doing, doing incredible work to advance um, women's rights and LGBTQ rights. And today I'm absolutely thrilled to have East Hampton resident Jennifer Levi here. Um, Jennifer is a senior director of transgender and queer rights at GLAAD in Boston and is also a law professor at Western New England School of Law. And I'll, I'll say more about all the cool stuff that Jennifer has done over many decades. But um, today we're going to talk about transgender rights, healthcare access, um, you know, other things that are going on across the country and trying to get a just general view of where we are. There's obviously been a lot of headlines um, with states across the country doing really you know, restricting rights to health care and other things. And so I wanted to start, Jennifer, by asking you kind of where are we as a nation right now with these laws and restrictions? Well, I'm going to dive right into that, but I want to 
first, thank you for having me on the show. And Absolutely. it is such a treat to get to be here with you and to share this um, opportunity with someone who's done such important work across so many different issues. So, thank you. Thank you, Carrie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, we are facing at the moment one of well, probably the most significant backlash, political backlash across the country, reversing protections for transgender people and um, uh, putting in place laws that uh, erode really established protections and rights. Just to give you a sense of the scale and the magnitude, in the last legislative session across the country, there were over 600 bills introduced in legislatures targeting transgender people for hostile treatment. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. Um, I want to say that the vast majority of those were defeated. It took a tremendous amount of resources. Actually, over 90% of them were defeated. But if you do the math, when you introduce 600 bills, that means far too many uh, laws have passed across the country that make transgender people's lives harder. Yeah, absolutely. And let me just kind of give you a a sense of the the range of the kinds of laws that we've seen passed. One that you've mentioned uh, uh, includes laws that prohibit transgender adolescents from getting well-established essential medical care. Those laws have been passed in nearly... Um, 20 states, which is is quite extraordinary. That's uh, areas in which I'm I'm now have brought a couple of cases. There's a number of different organizations across the country that have done that. But just to kind of identify the issue areas, there are uh, bans on transgender athletes, student mm-hmm. athletes participating in school sports in over 20 states. Uh, we have seen curriculum bans passed. A lot of people are familiar with the law uh, referred to as don't say gay or trans that was passed in Florida, Florida. which has had a chilling effect Mm -hmm. on the ability of students to just talk about their lives and their families. Uh, Eight states have passed laws prohibiting transgender people from using restrooms, Mm -hmm. students in schools. Florida has actually prohibited uh, transgender adults from even accessing restroom and government facilities. Uh, There are laws that have passed in states, three states now, that require teachers to out transgender students, even when they're going to face negative consequences. So it's very real, very serious, very expansive, and it's a moment. Yeah. So you talked about restrictions on health care for young people, and you you said that these laws are contrary to standards of medical care. Can you say more what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there are, I mean, you know, over uh, 22 professional organizations that have spoken out in opposition to these laws mm-hmm. because they deny transgender adolescents medical care that has been studied for a very long time, that has been recognized as uh, essential mm-hmm. to treating a medical condition which is referred to as gender dysphoria, which is uh, a, a condition that results in serious distress mm-hmm. by uh, from a transgender young person, but is highly treatable, and we know the uh, treatments that work, and those are the treatments that these laws prohibit doctors and um, other medical providers from from uh, providing. Right, right. This reminds me so much of what happened in the abortion context, that states passed laws that were contrary to current medical science and things like informed consent. Uh, you mentioned that, like, the Florida law that you're cha- – so you are you have challenges to these laws in Florida and Alabama. Um, and can you say a little bit about how you're challenging the laws and what parts of them you're challenging? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I've been involved in representing 
parents and adolescents in fam- in uh, Florida and mm-hmm. Alabama who are the parents are unable to get essential medical care for their their children mm-hmm. and I just I just want to say that um, you know it can it can be a new experience for any any you know most parents with transgender children aren't familiar with that right yeah. it's I mean, certainly in in Northampton and in the valley there's a lot more visibility yeah. around trans identities around non-binary identities it's you know it's it's uh, growing in terms of people's understanding of that experience but i'll say you know most parents who have a transgender child don't um, immediately understand that experience and it's been really important to be able to reach out to medical providers mental health providers to understand what their child is experiencing and it's obviously very heartening to know that there is treatment available to address the, the symptoms that a young person is experiencing. And so right. when Alabama passed um, a law, this is now over a year ago that the, the law passed, uh, parents, you know, not surprisingly reached out to legal organizations like the one that I work for, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders and others across the country to say, you know, like any other parent, I want to be able to support my child. And so what can we do? And we brought a lawsuit. The underlying claims are basically that the laws violate equal protection, that they single out transgender people and deny them medical care that is known to be effective because they're transgender. So it's a very straightforward equal protection claim. Uh, The laws also include a parental autonomy claim. Mm -hmm. The law presumes that parents make decisions in the best interest of their children um, and actually requires parents to care for their children. And these laws interfere very directly with that parental autonomy right. It's sort of ironic because conservative groups often really are supposedly pro-parental rights, but here we have them... um, contrary to that. So we have Jennifer Levi here with us today from GLAAD. So you filed this lawsuit in Alabama. What happened? And can I just ask, what does GLAAD stand for? Yeah, thank you. Uh, GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. Thank you. Yeah, Mm -hmm. been around for, I think, over 40 years now working on legal issues, have focused um, uh, oftentimes in New England, but given the expertise that we've really developed, particularly over issues around uh, transgender non-discrimination and also say marriage equality because the Valley's very much been at the heart of that work now a couple decades ago, uh, but do now also work throughout the the country. And so we found ourselves in Alabama with parents reaching out to us um, and we filed a motion for a preliminary injunction, which is a request to a court to issue an immediate order halting the law Mm -hmm. from going into effect. The law actually was in effect for a few days before the court there issued an order. But uh, we had a two-day hearing. We brought in medical experts. The court heard from um, uh, experts who talked about the the research that's demonstrated the effectiveness of care, heard from, you know, supposed experts on the other side, which really were disagreeing with medicine and and science. I mean, the states that have passed these laws have really been doing so based on an attack on medicine and science. Right. Um, I will say that the uh, Alabama, um, just just to be clear, like 
the the judge that heard the case in Alabama is a Trump appointed judge. So I, I don't wow. think anyone can can say that the outcome was was based on a, a politicized perspective. Uh, but but he heard the testimony and issued an order keeping that law from going into effect. You know, fast forward, uh, Florida passed a similarly burdensome law um, and brought a similar challenge. And, and the the judge in that case also issued a, an order preventing the law from being enforced. That's so heartening that, you know, somebody that's a Trump appointee in Alabama, of all places, struck down one of these laws banning access to care. It just, in my mind, shows the strength of your case. But it's encouraging to me that he was he or she was willing to listen to the science and, and have the science direct the decision, not politics. Yeah, I mean, Carrie, I feel heartened by the initial outcome in these cases as well. And the science and medicine is so strong. And the stories that parents have shared yeah. about the struggles and challenges that they've gone through to just ensure that their you know, children, their adolescents can have the opportunity to thrive. Because I think that was one of the other really moving parts of the testimony was both from parents but also from medical providers, which is that, yes, gender dysphoria can be disabling, can result in, you know, depression, loss of self-esteem, self-injury. But with treatment, transgender adolescents can, can thrive. Okay, we're going to take a break now. We'll be back in a minute. Well, actually, before we take a break, I think Bill's got some breaking news right now for we us. We do. From the Boston Globe, President, former President Donald Trump has received a target letter from the Department of Justice from Jack Smith. Wow. A target letter is a letter that goes from the federal government prosecutorial authorities to a person who is, in fact, being targeted. It gives that person an opportunity to go to the grand jury and testify, which they almost never do. And, of course, Donald Trump will not do. This is the second time that Trump has received a letter from uh, Jack Smith. The first time, of course, was regard to the national defense material that he had at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, Trump posted this information on his social media site, uh, Truth Social, I believe. And this does, in fact, mean that here's one thing that Trump said that is absolutely true. He said, and he reported on his social media site, that the grand jury investigation and the letter that he received with regard to it gave him four days to report to the grand jury. And there's the truthful part, which almost always means an arrest and indictment. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back more with Carrie and Jen right after this. Thanks. Bill. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true. But as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. Fitting in matters. Not feeling left out, it's only natural, especially in high school. At the Hartsbrook School in Hadley, fitting in doesn't mean conforming. It just means a sense of belonging. If you're into sports or into writing, if you're into arts or into math, if you're into nature or into technology, you can thrive at the Hartsbrook School. Childhood gives way to adolescence and you want to explore nearly every new thing you encounter or master one thing. 
Hartsbrook Education gives you time to breathe and focus. Learning is unhurried and intentional and never institutionalized. Subjects are often integrated, studying history through the lens of architecture, for example, or social studies by working for food justice. Hartsbrook prepares you to look the world in the eye and take responsibility for yourself and your community. The Hartsbrook School on a 55-acre campus in Hadley. New students welcome in any grade. Schedule a visit on the Hartsbrook School website. Just call or email the admissions office. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back uh, of Feminist Futures with Professor Carrie Baker of Smith College and law professor Jennifer Levi, the uh, Senior Director of Transgender and Queer Rights at GLAD. I am fascinated by this conversation, learning a lot. Yeah, thanks so much. So, um, Jennifer, uh, you have succeeded in these two at the preliminary stage in Florida and Alabama, which is amazing. Um, what was it like going down to Alabama and, you know, in that environment, which is obviously, you know, sort of Trump MAGA territory and arguing these these cases? I really appreciate the question. Uh, it's been an extraordinary opportunity to spend time in Montgomery, in Birmingham, and to walk the streets where you can feel the civil rights history, you can feel the power of the leaders who, um, who did so much yeah. to really work on anti-racism, to redress the you know, history of racism in our country. And, and, and you can feel it walking through the streets, walking into yeah. the courthouse. And I'll just say, I mean, I wake up every day when I do this work imagining that it is possible to make change. You have to, or you can't keep going. Exactly. (laughs) And having the opportunity to work with courageous lawyers that do this work day in and day out uh, in Alabama, in Florida, has been inspirational and does. It gives me tremendous hope. Absolutely. Local lawyers, are they scared and are they in danger? You know, they do this work. Um, uh, we are partnering with the Southern Poverty Law Center in Alabama. They've recently filed a case in Georgia, uh, but there's a private law firm that we are also working with uh, that, you know, they, they live in these communities. And, and you know, I, I want to say there's, there's so many caring, supportive people across yes. Alabama and Florida, you know, whose lives are, are hugely touched by the, the, these laws but who are working to make change and to support families and to support transgender people. And so people are really courageously moving forward. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, 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 I lived in North Georgia and actually Marjorie Taylor Greene's district for 13 years. And like you say, there, there are good people everywhere, people that support civil rights everywhere, although they may not, they may be outnumbered and they may be less visible from the outside, but they're there and they're working hard. Yeah, and there's engaged conversations every day that are happening, you know, because of the 
push and pull of how this work happens. There's a dad who's written quite eloquently about, you know, coming from three generations of people in Alabama who wants to stay in Alabama and support his yeah. child. And it's those stories that touch others that make change over time as much, if not more than legal outcomes in cases. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. that, of course, has been a feminist practice from the beginning, right? right? Sharing experiences, sharing stories. And that's what reaches people's hearts, you know, and and which might change their heads, their ideas. You... Um, Florida distinguishes itself as one of the few states that's also trying to ban access to um, transgender health care for adults. Can you say something about that? Yeah, the law um, that that uh, bars uh, medical care for transgender adolescents has also put in significant barriers that operate to prevent care for transgender adults as well. Uh, the law, for example, prohibits um, uh, telehealth uh, for the prescription of medication. It uh, has the Board of Medicine issued these informed consent, supposed informed consent forms that include uh, a tremendous number a number of misrepresentations about the treatment. Reminds um, me of abortion. That's what they do in abortion as well. That's exactly right. And they've limited the providers that can uh, give care. There are autonomous, certified, advanced practice registered nurses who regularly diagnose and treat and by Florida law actually are authorized to diagnose and treat conditions. This law creates an exception to that. Mm -hmm. So as a practical matter, it means that there are a lot of people who can't get care, who can't get a change in their uh, medical protocol. You know, imagine you're somebody who can't take the time from work or can't travel. Uh, there are now burdensome requirements for uh, letters from a psychiatrist before anyone can change treatment. None of that is consistent with the standard of care for adults, but are specifically designed and do have the effect of creating barriers for medical treatment. Absolutely. I mean, this happened in the abortion context, the ways they put in barriers that create costs that mean that low-income people and disproportionately people of color can't access this care yeah. and suffer the consequences the most of these bans. Yeah. I'll just say one other thing, and that we're also seeing medical centers shutting down care and turning away providers because one of the other things that the law does is impact the potential certification for medical providers, creates um, fines, it mm. creates potential um, uh, liability. Some of the laws that have passed across the country have included the kind of bounty provisions right. that we saw with in abortion. Texas with yeah. abortion. And so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the goal is clearly to shut down the care, and, and we are seeing uh, it become increasingly difficult for people to find medical care. Absolutely. So what about other states? I know many other states have these laws and their lawsuits. Ha have they been successful like your cases have so far? Yeah. So there have been a number of um, other cases that have been brought, and there have actually been six district courts that issued orders um, preventing laws from uh, being enforced. So in addition to Alabama and Florida, there were court orders issued in Indiana, um, and in Arkansas, there were also district court orders issued halting the laws from being enforced in Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, but unfortunately, in those states, we saw the appeals court issue a stay, which mm -hmm. means that the order that the law be enforced is not in effect. And in um, uh, each of those cases, actually in Alabama and in Florida as well, the states are appealing. And um, there's already been one very good uh, 
uh, appeals court decision out of the case in Arkansas that um, affirmed the lower court decision, and we'll see. You know, I do, I do want to say there are very strong factual records in these cases, yeah. and so um, I'm hopeful, but, you know, we'll, we'll see how, uh, how what continues in the courts. Well, and it's encouraging that there have been six successes, at least at some level, yeah. and uh, and it's based, like you say, on the good science and the, and the stories. They're compelling. Uh, hopefully that will continue, and, and these laws will be struck down. Um, we only have a little bit of time, and I, I, I didn't warn you about this, but I always finish the show by asking people, what is your feminist future? What do you want to see in the future? Well, well I, you know, I think that um, sexism remains such a barrier for women and girls, mm -hmm. all women and girls, and of course, other people as well. Yeah. But I'm really hopeful that we continue to see increased opportunities, uh, regardless of, of sex, gender assigned sex, but that people can continue to live full and complete uh, lives that take into account their gender identity and their sex, but that aren't restricted because of that. And I hope we're moving on that path, but there's so much more work to do. And so I wanna thank you for your incredible continued work in, um, uh, uh, in, in, do, in doing that, in teaching young people, you know, and in really working to reverse sexism. So. Absolutely. And, and actually, we have like a half a minute left. Okay. And I want to say, what, what should people be doing right now on this issue of these bans, these transgender health bans? Yeah. So just to say, I mean, there's, there's so much that people can do in terms of speaking out in opposition, talking to family members, supporting uh, families, members who are in states where there are bans. There are lots of families who have to come to Massachusetts and to other states in the region like Connecticut that we didn't get a chance to get into this, but Massachusetts has a provider protection law that does authorize uh, and protect medical doctors um, and other medical providers in Massachusetts who provide care to patients out of state. There's tremendous need for those families who are coming into our communities. There's real opportunities to provide support, provide support for adolescents who need it to speak out in support of um, transgender and non-binary young people. Absolutely. And I, I think it's about 13 states have these shield laws that protect providers in those states if people are coming to them from out of state. But as you said before, a lot of people can't travel. Right. And unlike abortion, which you can prescribe pills by telemedicine, you can't, it's harder to do that with transgender health care, right? I mean... It, 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 it's a, it's a, it is more complicated, but I, I do want to say, I mean, Massachusetts has been a leader in this area in passing a provider protection law. Um, there have been some really important connections across medical providers to, to ensure that there's an opportunity to reach out to provide care from people in states with bans. I mean, it's, gonna, it's going to and has put a lot of pressure mm -hmm. on medical systems in Massachusetts that, you know, also are providing um, for people in state and within our region, but it's been a really important legal development. And I actually hope that there will be additional states that pass provider protection laws as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I just I just want to say both of you are attorneys and both of you are just uh, so well informed, but you're both educators. And um, I know personally, and I think a lot of listeners, thank you so much for keeping us informed on these really important matters about civil rights of all of us, what affects one of us affects all of us. Um, Bill, anything more uh, that you've seen in terms of Trump uh, receiving a target letter? We'll update it right after the break. Sounds good.
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle is defending her veto of an ordinance passed by city council that was meant to protect people seeking abortions or other forms of reproductive health care. I don't feel that writing a local ordinance that basically is the, the same as a state ordinance is a good use of municipal time or municipal employees. La Chapelle says the ordinance was performative and an administrative burden on an issue that she does not see as local. Governor Maura Healey visited Deerfield yesterday to speak with farmers about the damages incurred through recent flooding and to assure them she is working to find funds to support cleanup efforts and payroll for the farms. The Healy-Driscoll administration also announced online resources to help individuals and communities impacted by heavy rainfall and flooding, ranging from education, financial assistance, cleanup, and assessments. On Monday, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court upheld the conviction of Greenfield's Dennis Bateman on two counts of first-degree murder and one count of armed robbery. In 2005, a 21-year-old pregnant employee at the Sunoco gas station on Routes 5 and 10 in Deerfield was strangled to death. Bateman's DNA was found at the scene and under the woman's fingernails. He was found guilty two years later. The appeal made by Bateman's lawyer claimed the trial held many errors. However, the Supreme Judicial Court denied the appeal for a new trial or reduction of verdicts. Partial sunshine this morning, showers and thunderstorms this afternoon, which could cause some flash flooding once again, the high of 84 to 88. Evening showers and storms, again with the potential for some flooding, uh, overnight low of 62 to 68. For tomorrow, it's a mixture of sun and clouds, a high of 84 to 88, and dry on Thursday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Got chronic joint pain? Not having success with steroids, but trying to avoid surgery? Well, thankfully, there's a better way, and now it's available here from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. I'm talking about new, advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints, providing lasting relief with no drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. This is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Everyone loves a clean house, but between our jobs and our families, who has time to keep the house clean? Hi, I'm Amy Love from Green Love Eco Cleaning, and I'd love the opportunity to put my team of eco-friendly cleaners to work in your home or business. At Green Love Eco Cleaning, we use our signature line of non-toxic aromatherapy cleaning solutions to keep your home or office clean while promoting greener, healthier lifestyle options for you and your family. To find out more about the services we provide, check out our website at greenloveclean.com.
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to Talk the Talk. We have a really special guest that we're going to be speaking with in just a minute, but Bill uh, has had his finger on the uh, news feed here. Anything new about the targeting, the target letter to Donald Trump by Jack Smith? I am looking. When we have an update, I will sadly interrupt us for a brief uh, news break. Very good. And what we'll be interrupting is David uh, Myers. Who's a, he is a distinguished professor of history at UCLA. He's the director of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy and the UCLA Initiative to Study Hate. He is going to be speaking tonight um, uh, virtually on the crisis of democracy in Israel. How did we get here? What should we do? I'm going to say it numerous times, but you can register for this really important and really interesting and really timely lecture, followed by a Q&A by David Myers. You can register at CBI, that's Congregation B'nai Israel, CBI Northampton, one word, dot org, slash, form, slash, Myers, M-Y-E-R-S hyphen talk, and we'll repeat that site again. Welcome, Professor Myers, and thank you for joining us. Really great to be with you. And I just want to say that I'm actually going to be in Northampton in person. Uh, so if you want to see me in the flesh, uh, you can come to the synagogue and hear the talk. Well, I got that all wrong, didn't I? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, But we will re- repeat the site for those persons who can't see you live and in color uh, tonight. So the crisis of democracy in Israel, is, um, how did we get here? Where is here? Well, at present, um, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is attempting to push forward another in a series of legislative acts that will essentially undermine uh, the efficacy of the Israeli judiciary system. Um, uh, This latest uh, act is uh, a proposed law that would uh, prohibit uh, the Supreme Court in Israel, act against the High Court of Justice, uh, from adopting a standard of extreme unreasonableness when reviewing the actions of government officials. So say a prime minister nominates a twice convicted uh, uh, felon to a cabinet position, and the Supreme Court says you can't do that, uh, this bill would effectively erode the capacity of the Supreme Court to, uh, to do that. And it's one of a series of legislative acts that uh, Netanyahu is pushing forward uh, under the name or guise of judicial review, uh, I'm sorry, judicial overhaul, which will effectively erode the very notion of judicial review um, and undo the system of checks and balances in the Israeli democratic system. Um, a very uh, sobering and severe moment uh, in Israeli history. Uh, since I majored in dumb questions, let me ask one. How does that imperil democracy? Well, what the erosion of the capacity of judicial review would do uh, would effectively bestow upon the executive and legislative, which are already entwined because of the Israeli parliamentary system, to basically do whatever it wanted to do without any measure of restraint um, by any other part of the government. It essentially combines all power in the governing coalition whose leader is the prime minister. So the governing coalition in the Israeli parliament uh, is led by the prime minister. And what serves as a constraint on the power of that kind of combined legislative and executive is the judiciary. If you um, undo that power, 
Um, the, the Knesset, for example, could easily pass a law that says a prime minister can't be uh, convicted while in office. Well, turns out we have a prime minister who's on trial for uh, three charges of corruption and fraud. Um, it would essentially allow the Knesset to um, uh, permit Bibi Netanyahu to be emperor for life. Um, that's just one instance of uh, the danger that's at hand. Let me point out that, in fact, you can sign up for this talk tonight. Go to the Congregation, Congregation B'nai Israel website, go to the calendar, click on the event. It will take you right to the registration form again, Congregation B apostrophe N-I-I-N-A-I Israel, and you can hear about, you can register for tonight's event. Uh, so we do so look forward to hearing from you. And, and so, David Myers, you... Um Somebody's phone is ringing. Um, so tell me, do you see any historical precedents for this proposal in Israel? Uh, not really. Um, to limit the... the if, uh, no, not, not really. No. In fact, what we've seen over the last 50 years or so is uh, an expansion of the, of the powers of the judiciary. Um, and that's in part what has prompted this attempt to constrain and restrict. Um, this had a lot to do with the importation in Israel of American-style views of uh, the judiciary, led in particular by Supreme Court Justice and then President of the Supreme Court, Aharon Barak. Uh, but I do think it's important to note that what we're seeing, um, you know, which is really the result of uh, the most recent Israeli election when uh, Bibi Netanyahu was forced to join in a coalition with uh, some far-right extremist parties, um, does have roots in an earlier period. Um, it's important to note that he was elected prime minister for a second time in 2009. And from that point forward, from 2009 to 2020, he already began to embark upon a path towards um, defining Israel as a different kind of democracy, not uh, a democracy that accords rights to all, but really a democracy that accords rights to its Jewish majority um, and a democracy that, um, uh, that no longer guaranteed protections to individuals or minorities within. Um, we see that, for example, in uh, the passing of uh, a semi a kind of quasi constitutional basic law by the Knesset under Netanyahu's leadership in the summer of 2018 called the nation state law, which essentially enshrined um, Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people and made no reference to the existence of other peoples like the uh, Palestinian population uh, within it, about 20% of the country. Uh, and so um, Netanyahu did a trial run during that long decade uh, from 2009 to 2020, uh, trying to um, sort of redefine Israeli democracy. Um, but what we saw after his election on November 1st, 2022, um, uh, was um, a redoubled effort to really redefine Israeli democracy altogether and doing taking particular aim at the judiciary. So there's a longer history and there's a more recent uh, instance of uh, intensified activity that began with his re-election in, in November 22. Professor David Myers, could you explain to me something I really don't understand, and that is the power of the judiciary in Israel and this reasonableness uh, patina that can be put over law, something that seems very different from American law. Could you help me understand that? It's not the most eloquent question, yeah. but I think you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Right. Well, you know, we, we, it is a, it, the standard of extreme reasonableness 
um, which is, I think, a better way to understand it than the standard of reasonableness, uh, because uh, the Supreme Court is permitted to make use of that standard when the criterion of extreme unreasonableness has been uh, has been met. Um, you know, we operate the American system with rational actor models, but that criterion of reasonableness really draws from uh, the British legal system, uh, which was such an important feeder uh, uh, of ideas into uh, the state of Israel, which, of course, was uh, the immediate successor to the British, British mandatory government that uh, 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 established administrative control over Palestine from 1922 to 1948. Um, so, can I interrupt, idea, can I interrupt Professor? Yeah, sure. Does this mean that if a case goes before the Israeli Supreme Court, if what is at issue does not meet the standard, the minimal standard of, or it offends the standard, it does not meet the standard of being reasonable, or it's extremely unreasonable, the Supreme mm-hmm. Court can strike down the action or the law? Yeah, not any action and not any law. Uh, the, the, the criterion is used uh, when the court operates as the High Court of Justice, which reviews decisions by government officials and ministers, not the laws that are proposed by proposed or passed by the Knesset. So this is a standard that is used uh, principally for uh, matters of administrative law, uh, matters that uh, are raised by decisions of government ministers and officials. So for example, uh, the proposed appointment of uh, Arya Dere to the position of interior and health ministers after two convictions uh, by the prime minister. That is the domain in which this standard, which you're suggesting has a certain subjectivity built into it, uh, can be deployed. Not in every instance, not with laws that the Knesset passes, but in this particular domain where there is not uh, a wide vetting by uh, the voice of the people as represented by the Knesset. Before we take a break, I, I want to ask you, Professor David Myers, that uh, Representative uh, Pramila Jayapal, she's uh, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, she had a walk-back comment that she made. Um, over the weekend, she referred to Israel as a racist state, which brought a whole lot of commentary from progressives within her caucus, her uh, fellow Democrats, and also from people on the Republican side and from Jews in, in the United States. Um, and she walked it back saying, I don't mean just to say that they're a racist state, but she, again, questioned what she said was radical extremist action by Israelis against Palestinian state and the, and the two-state solution proposal. So what do you have to say about her comments and about her walking it back? Well, I will say in the first instance that I can understand why someone would say that the state of Israel is a racist state. And from the perspective of Palestinians, it certainly seems as if the state enfranchises the rights of Jews uh, over those of uh, 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 the indigenous population. Um, I should also say it's not my language because I think it's a much more complex uh, 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 matter. Um, and I welcome um, Representative Jayapal's walk back. Um, and I think what she uh, went on to clarify is absolutely true, which is that there are extremists um, who have assumed positions of, uh, of real power in the, the current governing coalition, particularly finance minister Bitzel Smotrich and Minister of, uh, of National Security, of Public Security, Itamar Ben-Gvir. These are people who have um, been convicted of, uh, of essentially hate crimes, who hold to avowedly racist uh, ideas, uh, 
Ben Gvir um, was a devotee of the American Israeli Rabbi Mer Kahana, uh, had hanging in his home a picture of uh, Dr. Mark Goldstein, who undertook a massacre of Muslim worshippers in Hebron in 1994. These are the kind of people who are in positions of power. Ben Gvir's in charge of the police. Um, so I, I, I think um, Jaya Paul was, uh, was correct in, in, in the, the, the clarification. And I think she's 100% right in saying that there are terrifying extremist racists uh, in power in Israel today. UCLA historian David Myers, you have written over 15 books on Jewish history. You are truly an expert um, uh, in the arena. What brings you to Northampton tonight? What do you want to talk about uh, here in Northampton at Congregation B'nai Israel at 7 o'clock tonight? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, this is a bit of a reveal because... Um, my wife and I have a summer home in the Berkshire Mountains, um, and uh, we spend uh, several months a year here. Um, and we have dear friends in the Northampton community, including at the synagogue. Um, and uh, I was really delighted to be invited. Um, what I want to clarify is uh, really three things. Uh, where are we today? Uh, how did we get where we are? And where are we going? Um, and uh, uh, connected to that is what might we do to, uh, to uh, fortify the forces of democracy in Israel. This is a, a fateful struggle. Um, and um, I think all who believe in justice, equality, and democracy um, should make their way to the right side of this, uh, of this uh, confrontation uh, and support the extraordinary protest movement uh, that, has, uh, uh, that has continued for 28 weeks without cease. Um, a completely nonviolent, peaceful form of political expression uh, that, um, if it were translated into American terms numerically, would mean that some 70 million Americans were taking to the streets. So it's really an extraordinary manifestation of people power. Um, and I think we need to know more about it here in the United States and find ways to support it. And again, we will be uh, continuing our conversation with David Myers. He will be at Congregation B'nai Israel on Prospect Street here in Northampton tonight at 7 o'clock. He'll be talking about the crisis of democracy in Israel. How do we get here and what should we do? We want to talk more about what we should do right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman. Weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. 
But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching, coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with Professor David Myers, the historian uh, um, from UCLA, who will be here in Northampton tonight speaking at Congregation B'nai Israel on Prospect Street about the crisis of democracy in Israel. How did we get here? What should we do? Bill, during the break, you said you had a question for the professor. I do, and we should note that for those of you who cannot make it to the live event tonight, you can see it on live stream. Again, that information and the link is available through the Congregation B'nai Israel website. Just go to the calendar, click on today, and you will be brought to where you need to be. I'd like to ask you, Professor, what you think the Israeli government should do. I want to set as the proposition that there is a crisis of democracy in Israel. It needs to be addressed. There are huge demonstrations going on uh, directed at the, the attempts to negate the Supreme Court's power. Uh, the Palestinian people are being shelled, frankly, and uh, it seems to me that there is no question that there is a crisis in democracy. I'd like your perspective. What would you do to remedy the crisis of democracy in Israel? Well, I think several things uh, would have to happen. In the short term, the government should cease all efforts to undertake this overhaul uh, of the judiciary, including what it began with, which was the attempt to pass a bill that would allow the Knesset to overrule um, a judgment of the Supreme Court by simple majority, um, which uh, would effectively eviscerate the Israeli Supreme Court. Um, the second thing is I think Benjamin Netanyahu um, has uh, uh, long since passed his shelf life and must leave the scene. Um, uh, he has um, accrued power uh, through um, uh, corruption uh, 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 over you know, the course of his career, um, and he's done untold damage to the state of Israel, and, and I think he has to go. Um, I think what this crisis points up, um, and, I, and, and Bill, you hinted at this, is the connection between the assault on democracy and Israel's control over uh, Palestinians, especially in the West Bank, uh, in the form of the occupation. Uh, but as a step uh, toward uh, addressing that, uh, that problem, I think um, what the Knesset needs to do um, in its uh, new iteration in the post-Netanyahu era is in fact to pass a basic law uh, that lays out the principle of equality for all. Because one of the things that Netanyahu has done over the course of uh, his time since 2009 is quite deliberately trying to move the pendulum uh, from that position of equipoise between Jewish and democratic, the way in which Israel came to define itself, much more to the Jewish side and to the ethnocentric Jewish side which means that democracy has suffered. 
and the principles of equality and justice for all have suffered. Um, and I think that um, uh, what is a reasonable a goal to uh, strive for is the passage of a basic law of equality, which is in some ways the antidote to the articulation that we see in the nation state law of 2018, which makes no reference to any citizens other than Jews in the state of Israel. Uh, these are three concrete steps that I can see. And I think if we move towards those goals, which is um, a, a very, very uh, substantial ask, um, we will begin to confront what I think really lies at the core of the democracy crisis, which is the occupation. Um, professor, professor, uh, in a couple minutes we have left, Dan, you had a question for yeah, Professor I did, David. And I'll make it brief. Um, I'm curious to know what you think is behind the growth in the sort of more conservative uh, and nationalistic extremist. Uh, extremist sort of rhetoric in um, Israeli politics. Um, because I think we've seen that shift. The Labour Party and the Likud Party, the conservatives, used to battle it out. And now Likud is the like moderate centrist and all of these religious and nationalistic parties are in control. What's behind that? Yeah. Well, I think there are local reasons and there are global reasons. Uh, the local reasons are um, actually um, less contact between Israelis and Palestinians than used to be the case. Um, one might assume that more contact would lead to um, more uh, conflictual sensibilities. But in fact, uh, because the security system, the security uh, uh, system has been so stabilized um, and through the construction of a wall uh, between the West Bank and Israel within the Green Line, Israelis have very little contact with, uh, with Palestinians. And within those conditions, um, um, it turns out that um, hatred and, and racist attitudes have grown rather than diminished. We also see a very significant rise in the population of uh, the religious population, especially the ultra-religious or Haredi population, um, and it has turned increasingly right-wing. <clears throat> um, one of the curious features of Israeli political life, um, in contrast to almost anywhere else in the world, is that <clears throat> younger generations are more right-wing than older generations. Um, and I think we now have to tie that into the larger global scene, where um, Ethnocentrism has um, has flourished really throughout the world um, in so many instances, in so many places, uh, from Turkey to uh, to Poland to, and Hungary to the United States. Israel is part of that global network. Of so we have services. to, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Um, Professor David Myers is going to be speaking tonight at Congregation B'nai Israel, the crisis of democracy in Israel. And uh, Bill, one more time, if people can't attend live and in color. Go to the Congregation B'nai Israel website and you will be able to see this and participate remotely. It's all right on the there. Calendar. Just go to the calendar. Today's date. Thank you all for joining us on Talk to Talk today. Remember, walk that walk. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. 
What if there were a way to go into cancer surgery or treatment feeling more comfortable and optimistic? Recorded meditations can help. Doctors have said that it makes their job simpler. Nurses tell us their patients may go home sooner and need less pain medication. Cancer Connection creates custom meditations for people affected by cancer, and you don't even have to come in. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's a